0: Secret FBI memos made public today show that the late J. Edgar Hoover ordered a nationwide campaign to disrupt the activities of the new left without telling any of his superiors about it. Many of the techniques were clearly illegal. Burglaries, forged blackmail letters, and threats of violence were used. The FBI at one time sought to blackmail the late Martin Luther King into committing suicide. That was just some of the coverage that flowed from one of the most extraordinary burglaries in American history, the break-in of a small FBI office outside Philadelphia on the evening of March 8th, 1971, 50 years ago this Monday. While much of the country that night was obsessing over the fight of the century, the bout in Madison Square Garden between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, a small group of anti-Vietnam War protesters broke into the Bureau's resident office in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole up to 1,000 secret documents, and then began mailing them anonymously to members of Congress and journalists. Director J. Edgar Hoover was enraged, and he had good reason to be worried. The documents expose shocking abuses of surveillance of left wing protesters and student groups and of directors for every FBI field office to create so-called racial squads charged with recruiting informants inside minority communities. And it also contained the first clues to the existence of COINTELPRO, the secret FBI program to harass and intimidate civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King. We'll talk to the first reporter to receive and then write about the stolen FBI documents, Betty Medsker, and then to one of the burglars who broke into the office, Keith Forsythe. This is the first of two episodes of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure that will explore the history of FBI abuses that have new resonance today. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute
1: the office of President of the United States. to the best of my ability.
0: Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.
1: So help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
0: So help me God. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So everybody in the world knows the story of the Watergate break-in in 1972 that ultimately led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. But... Virtually nobody knows the story of this earlier break-in, a year 1971 before Watergate, that was practically as consequential. The legacy of that burglary, the FBI abuses that were exposed were so stunning and so powerful in the Public imagination that it transformed the public's image of the FBI. And, you know, we are still dealing with the fallout from those FBI abuses today.
2: Yeah, this is such a cool story um, uh, on so many different levels. uh, But as you say, it has echoes. Of you know both uh, the Watergate break-in, but also of the Pentagon Papers, and it's it's also uh, an interesting story about journalism and a throwback uh, to a different era, a, a time in which uh, you couldn't take for granted that when um, a a journalist at a major newspaper like the Washington Post got a huge scoop, you know, secret documents uh, that revealed huge abuses at the FBI, that that would just be published. Uh, because it was a time when there was both uh, real trust in institutions like the FBI, and I guess also fear uh, that there would be uh, real, you know, a real backlash if you did publish. And so I'm eager to talk to Betty Metzger about the debates uh, over actually publishing those documents, what that was like. But I got to say, I'm also eager to talk to Keith Forsyth uh, I don't think I've ever interviewed a a lock picker uh, before <laughs> in my in my career. Well, he
0: was he was an amateur who took a, a uh, lock picking course uh, in order to open the uh, lock outside the uh, FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, the second floor of a uh, of an office building. It, it turned out to be a lot more complicated than that, but he broke in, he made it in, ultimately used a crowbar and uh, was able to get access. He and his Confederates were able to get access to all these documents. Um, but when you talk about the sort of difference in journalism today, and the the difference in the trust in public institutions. Um, There's a passage in in Betty Metzger's book, the excellent book, The Burglary, about all this, where she points out that the morning after the media burglary, uh, Senator Sam Irvin... We all remember him from the later Watergate Cigar chomping, (laughs) Watergate. uh... Was pushing legislation that would guarantee that citizens would not be abused by the collection of information by federal government agencies about their political opinions and private lives. And there was a hearing on this right after this, this burglary in which an assistant attorney general from the Justice Department by the name of William Rehnquist (laughs) testified that there was no need for such legislation. Rehnquist, of course, the future chief justice of the United States, argued that isolated imperfections in surveillance information collection should not be permitted to, quote, obscure the fundamental necessity and importance of federal information gathering or the generally high level of performance in this area by the organizations involved. Uh, There should be no legislative restrictions, Rehnquist insisted, For quote, self discipline on the part of the executive branch will provide an answer to virtually all of the legitimate complaints against excesses of information gathering. Self discipline by J. Edgar Hoover and John Mitchell, then the attorney general, is what we should, uh, uh, is what Rehnquist was saying the public and the Congress should uh, trust.
2: Yeah, just trust us. Well, Rehnquist clearly did not perceive uh, that the ground was rumbling beneath him and beneath all of our institutions. And uh, that was a, you know, right when that was happening was a huge inflection point in American politics. Um, You know, the, the other thing that uh, is really Important to say about this story is it, it resonates in all sorts of ways uh, today uh, with our institutions and with the FBI um, and as law enforcement in particular, you know, is on the one hand having its own racial reckoning as well. I mean, questions are being asked about you know the FBI and other law enforcement institutions um, engaging in racial profiling, um, and of course, looking at this long history. Of, of racism and structural racism in in law enforcement and other institutions but at the same time the FBI after particularly after the attack on the, the capitol on January 6th is newly focused on white supremacy and extremist right-wing violence. Um, so you know as usual the FBI is uh, trying to navigate, I think tricky cross currents um, and all of the kinds of issues that uh, we're exploring in this two-part series uh, are, uh, are relevant, including the issue of whether the FBI building ought to be renamed. It is right now called the J. Edgar Hoover Building, and there are a lot of people who believe that it's it's uh, time for that to change, and we'll be getting into that with uh, Congressman Steve Cohen on the next episode um, of this two-part
0: series. Just a couple of other quotes I want to um, read from some of these documents that uh, the um, the break in into the uh, that media Pennsylvania FBI office uh, produced. Uh, one, of course, is the very first document that um, Betty Metzger saw when she received this package from something called the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. That's what the burglars labeled themselves. They didn't identify who they were until many, many years later, actually just seven years uh, ago. Um, uh, But that first document um, talked about uh, was a directive uh, to all FBI agents to step up their interviews with dissenters. Quote, for plenty of reasons, chief of which are it will enhance the paranoia endemic in these circles and will further serve to get the point across there is an FBI agent behind every mailbox. That was the image that J. Edgar Hoover wanted to be plant in the minds of uh, of activists. Well, there's if there's a, a
2: communist under every bed, you better have an <laughs> FBI agent behind every mailbox. <laughs> there
0: you go. There you go. And the other, of course, were the uh, uh, directives uh, to every field office, which I referred to in the introduction, uh, to create a, quote, racial squad whose job it would be to coordinate all racial matters, including uh, recruiting, quote, ghetto informers who would use... Uh, information about Black nationalists and Black revolutionary groups. And that, of course, leads directly to the subject of our the of part two of this special buried treasure, uh, the story of Fred Hampton now memorialized in the excellent new movie, Judas and the black Messiah. We'll talk to the director of that movie uh, in the second part of this uh, buried treasure. But right now we've got uh, part one with the journalist who got the FBI docs and one of the burglars who um, made it all possible so let's get to it. All right. We are now joined by Betty Medzger, author of The Burglary and the first reporter to receive and write about the FBI documents that were stolen from the uh, office in Media, Pennsylvania, and Keith Forsyth who was one of the burglars who broke in to the FBI office. Um, Betty and Keith, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. So, Betty, let's start with you because it's such an amazing story. You're a reporter at The Washington Post in 1971. Um, you are covering, among other things, religious affairs and the peace movement. And one day you go to your mailbox at the Post newsroom and tell us what you found.
3: Well, I had a big manila envelope addressed to me with a return address of Liberty Publications, Media, Pennsylvania. It didn't mean anything to me went back to my office and opened it. And uh, it was from anonymous people. No one was named as a sender. But there was a, a cover letter from people who called themselves the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. And in this document, they described what they had done and said that enclosed were copies of files that they had stolen from the media FBI office on the night of March 8th and that they hoped that I would see that they, were, that they were published. And if they were published, that more might come. So you look at the documents, and what do you see in there? Well, the one that uh, stands out immediately and became sort of the symbolic document of at least of the, of the first bunch uh, was, a, was a directive to agents to enhance the paranoia. And to make the point that behind every mailbox is an FBI agent.
0: Enhance the paranoia among who?
3: This was specifically directed for agents who were covering the anti war movement. So that was pretty dramatic, but that was a goal to make people paranoid because people in various movements accused each other of being paranoid in, the, in those days because they feared that there were spies in, in their midst. The other thing that, that stood out. Uh, were documents that described the massive surveillance of, of Black people that was taking place. I mean, truly stasi like which is what the reaction eventually was when these files became publicly known, that it looked like the, at least in regard to Black Americans, as though the FBI was acting like the secret police of East Germany, which was very well known and much dreaded at that time. Just these two extreme things, that's the document uh, trying to inspire paranoia and the stasi like uh, coverage of Black Americans, made me think as I I looked through the files initially that maybe this was a hoax. But as I kept reading, I saw familiar names from Philadelphia, people who were under surveillance, including Mohammed Kenyatta, a leader in the Black community there, and also Paul Washington, the pastor of a famous church in Philadelphia. So I began to think, well, maybe they are real.
2: What did you do to Betty to to try to authenticate uh, the documents? Well, that was the
3: first thing that had to be done. (laughs) That we we couldn't move forward until we knew they were authentic. So I went out into the newsroom at that point and went to the national desk. And as it turned out, they had just received a call from Ken Clausen, the reporter who covered the Justice Department and therefore the FBI, and he had called to ask if anybody at the Post had received these stolen files. And the reason he could ask that question was that the other, uh, let's see, two journalists, other two journalists, and uh, the other four people, two members of Congress and two journalists who had received them had turned them into the FBI the previous day. And so the FBI knew which files had been sent out. They had told Ken about that. So the National Desk got me to, Describe the files I had to Ken. He went to the FBI and said, Okay, somebody at the Post has received, here's what they've received. And they said, Yes, those are copies of the stolen media file.
0: Small irony here. I'd like to point out that very same Ken Clausen then leaves the post yes. to become the communications director for Richard Nixon's White House. All during Watergate, he was uh, the chief flack for uh, Richard Nixon. But he's the guy who authenticated
3: these documents for you. That's right, and that's why he shares the byline on the on the first story that day. Yeah. So it turned out that the FBI thought that because they confirmed the document, the authenticity of the documents, that we therefore would not publish the contents. Uh, And that may seem strange by today's standards, but this was really the beginning of the culture of absolute secrecy regarding intelligence agency changing. I mean, up until this time, it was pretty much assumed by everybody Congress, attorney generals, but also journalists, that intelligence agencies could keep their secrets. They were not held accountable the way other government agencies were. So they made that assumption, and then uh, when they found out we were considering publishing, sort of all hell broke loose. (laughs)
0: So, Keith, I'd like to bring you into it because uh, clearly, uh, as Betty uh, has just outlined, this was a, a quite a consequential uh, series of documents she received, and she couldn't have received them without <laughs> the work that you and your fellow band of burglars did uh, back then. So tell us how you came to be a part of this burglary, what your role was, and a little about what happened on the evening of March 8th, 1971.
1: So the way I I came to be a part of it was, um, I knew Bill Davidon through what was referred to as the Catholic left. Bill Davidon was one of the local Philadelphia area leaders of the peace movement. And he was also a professor at uh, Haverford College. He was one of the main people, you know, that kept things moving forward in the peace movement in the Philadelphia area. I met him through the so-called Catholic left, which I always think is funny because neither Bill nor I were Catholic. But anyway, this was the group of uh, loosely organized group of people, mostly on the East Coast, the most famous members being the Berrigan brothers who were breaking into draft boards and stealing records. And Bill and I were both involved in that activity. And that's how I met Bill. And he approached me one day and uh, wanted to uh, see if I was interested in a new idea he was working on. And his new idea was to break into an FBI office and steal the files and send them to the newspapers so that, you know, the public at large would know what. Those of us who were active in the movement already knew, which was that the FBI was doing a lot of stuff they shouldn't have been doing to spy on and suppress legitimate First Amendment activity.
0: So just uh, just to set the stage here a little bit, at the time, if I recall correctly, you were like driving a cab, right? Yes. And here this sort of you know anti-war activist comes to you and says, I want you to help me break into an FBI office. What goes through your mind? <laughs>
1: well, you know it's it's a little hard to reconstruct after all these years but um I I think it's fair to say that uh my mind was a little blown at the beginning uh certainly wouldn't have been something I would have thought of on my own um as being feasible but of course you know the idea of uh you know of exposing this uh you know the way police power was being used against all of the movements for change was, you know, like, yeah, that's awesome. Is this really even possible? As it turned out, Bill was right. It was possible.
2: <laughs> so you didn't. So, Keith, you didn't have any um, ethical qualms about this. You believe oh, uh, no. that. Yeah, there was just no. Right. You believe that that there was a, a, a higher cause here, uh, that this was this was the right thing to do. But what about this could have been a bust right? I mean, you could have uh, broken in and, and, and not gotten the documents you were looking for. And got arrested. <laughs> and gotten arrested. Um, yeah. how, how did you um, then uh, plan the operation? What was your specific role in it? And how nerve wracking was it to pull something off like this?
1: So I think, I think one of the reasons Bill invited me was that I had some skills with regard to locks. In my experience with the with the draft board raid movement, um, I concluded that in a lot of cases we'd be better off picking our way into some of these offices rather than breaking in, you know, with the noisier methods. And so uh, I set about learning how to do that and teaching other people how to do it. And in terms of my role, that was my main role. I mean, I helped with the yeoman work, you know, casing and in the meetings discussing, you know, the planning and so on. But most of the leadership of that sort of thing were, came from people with more experience, Bill, John and Bonnie and so on.
0: So but you were you were the guy who goes up and uh, that night tries to pick the lock. Right. On the door. This is a it's a small FBI office. It's the second floor in in, in an office building in um, in Media, Pennsylvania. Of course, it's the night of the Ali Fraser uh, fight, which is which was no coincidence. You picked no, it was not. You picked that night because you figure everybody is going to be listening to on the radio to the fight, and you get there, but it was a little more difficult than you had planned. It sure
1: was. So when I got there, I I knew what to expect. I was not worried uh, at all. I go up to the door, and instead of one lock on the door, there's now two locks on the door, and one of them is a uh, uh, is a lock that's a completely different design than the one on your front door, and it's a much higher security lock, and you can't pick with the kind of tools that I had with me. So both Bonnie and I had. She'd cased the inside and I'd cased the outside pretty recently. And uh, that lock was not there. So that really threw me off. I was like, did I miss this somehow? Which really upset me. Or how did it magically get here? So anyway, to make a long story short, that door was out for that night. There was no way to to get through it quietly. So as Betty describes quite well in her book, I was really flustered, didn't know what to do. Went back to the motel room. We had a, an extensive conversation and somebody, I believe, Bonnie, I won't swear to that, suggested, well, what about the other door that has the, the cabinets in front of it? And we're like, oh, yeah, the other door. So I went back and the other door only had one regular lock on it. So that was no problem. I got through that lock in no time. Unfortunately, there was also a deadbolt on the door. So that's where the Ali-Fraser fight also came in handy. You're going to make noise when you break a deadbolt off. (laughs) There's no way around it. So the building uh, superintendent lived in the apartment right under my feet. And I could hear uh, the radio. So I waited for that to kind of swell and broke through the deadbolt. And then the door moved about an inch and ran into the cabinet. So the cabinet was massive, and I could tell how heavy it was. So, again, uh, I couldn't move it with the tools I had. I went back out to the car, got the jack post out of the trunk and used that as a lever to slide it across the carpeted floor a little bit at a time. So that was that was a little more nerve wracking than I planned.
2: I got to ask. uh, So in 1971, uh, the FBI, the premier uh, federal (laughs) law enforcement agency and domestic intelligence agency in the United States doesn't have an alarm system.
1: I mean, come on. They don't need an alarm system. What criminals are going to break into an FBI office? They'd have to be nuts. Well,
3: can I interrupt here? Please do. They had tried to have an alarm system. The previous September, uh, the head of of that office had asked headquarters for an alarm system and also for a very large safe for their most important files. And the person in charge of making that decision at headquarters was none other than Mark Felt.
0: I love it. <laughs> oh, my Future God. Deep throat. Deep throat. And Mark <laughs> Felt
3: said no to both of those requests. And uh, correct me, Keith, if, if I'm wrong here, but I think that if you had discovered, especially like if Bonnie had gone in and discovered that there was a Uh, very well-installed alarm system, it might have made a huge difference in whether or not you would have even decided to go in.
1: It would have been much harder, that's for sure.
3: The
0: lines to Watergate from this story are so delicious from Mark Felt and Ken Clausen. So um, we know from FBI documents and from Betty's excellent book that J. Edgar Hoover was enraged about this and launched a nationwide investigation to find the burglars who broke in and stole these secret FBI documents. Keith, you said you had no ethical qualms about doing this. I want to play you a clip from an interview I did seven years ago when I was at NBC when I did a piece on... um Uh, on this, with Patrick Kelly, who was one of the FBI agents in charge of the investigation. Here's what he had to say about what you did. The statute of limitations has long expired, but Patrick Kelly, the ex-agent who investigated the case back then, said that the theft remains inexcusable. They're rationalizing a criminal act. I don't believe such people have the right to take upon themselves and make decisions Um, Keith, your reaction?
1: Yeah, I've heard it all before. You know, a couple things. One is, first of all, what they were doing was literally against the law. They were using their power to persecute and intimidate people who were doing things that are protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution. That was not legal or ethical or moral. And it's contrary to what democracy is all about. Uh, they were spending about half their energy on political surveillance, 99% of which was on people who weren't doing anything even nominally criminal. You know, if they had been investigating us, the Catholic left, I would have less quarrel with that because after all, we were breaking the law. But what they were doing was wrong and Congress made it even more wrong after they found out about it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is If breaking the law is so sacrosanct, would Mr. Kelly then turn in his Jewish neighbors if he lived in Germany in 1938? Is that that what he would do? Uh, Or send back fugitive slaves from Pennsylvania back to the South, and after the Fugitive Slave Act was passed? Of course we need laws to have a civilized society, I get that. But those laws don't always work and they're not always right. And when they're egregiously and obviously wrong, then it's your duty to break them. And so I have zero respect for that simplistic idea that, you know, whatever the law says always goes. Yeah. That's ridiculous.
2: Now you you um and 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 the other uh, burglars made the decision to stay anonymous uh, after the burglary um, and you even went so far as I think not to really communicate with each other for some period of time and I guess you came out only after the statute of limitations had expired. Is
1: that right? It was long after that.
2: Long after that, <laughs> we came
1: out after after Betty uh, asked us to.
2: So why why did you choose to stay anonymous? I mean, presumably you didn't want to be prosecuted uh, for these crimes, but it would have been an opportunity to uh, stand up for your principles. But you chose not to. Um, so what was your what was your rationale for staying anonymous
1: all those years? I mean, my personal rationale you know, 80% of it was because I didn't want to spend the next 30 years in a federal prison. Um, <laughs>
0: uh, not a bad that's, reason. That's a re-
1: good, pretty good reason. Yep. <laughs> I, I stand by that decision. And the the uh, option of moving to Moscow was not available to me at the time. So, <laughs> and the other 20% was, you know, most of the press at that time was not the Washington Post, not that the Washington Post was perfect, but most of the press were shills for whatever the government said and so this would have been a story about our personalities and you know uh and all that kind of stuff and detracted from the point of the documents you know we we weren't needed to interpret the documents there were plenty of people out there placed better than we were to interpret and run with the documents you know we our job was to get them and we got them and the press did their job, you know, this whole thing would have gone nowhere without the Washington Post and without Betty.
2: Yeah. And I actually, I wanted to pick up on that, uh, Betty. And and because, you know, today, people get classified documents, they just throw them up on the internet. (laughs) Um, But um, standards were, as you pointed out, were very different back then. And it was gutsy for the Washington Post uh, to do this. You said that when the FBI realized you had these documents, that's when all hell broke loose. So tell us, Uh, What happened? Tell us how uh, the FBI reacted. Tell us how the Washington Post uh, responded.
3: Well, when I say all hell broke loose, I'm really referring to Attorney General John Mitchell and what he did that day. Uh, You may remember that he was involved in Watergate and went to prison for his role in Watergate just a few years later. But uh, on the day that uh, they found out that that we had the, the files and that we were considering publishing them, he called uh, Ben Bradley, the executive editor of the Post, and Catherine Graham, the publisher, repeatedly, beginning at 11 o'clock in the morning until 4 o'clock, and he was demanding that they suppress the story. And uh, I don't know that he was aware of, of actually what this, the split was uh, at the highest levels of the paper. Bradley uh, was strongly supporting publication, but Catherine Graham and the in-house counsel were against publication. So that's why it was a, it was a struggle that took um, a lot of convincing f- from Bradley. Uh, the fact that they were stolen and sent to us by the unknown burglars was also a factor in her thinking. Fortunately, uh, Bradley took the position, uh, which, which I f- felt too, that we had confirmed their authenticity They were about something extremely important to Americans that had to do with the basic right to dissent. And later on, we would find out it had to do with much more. But therefore, they would be published and it didn't matter uh, that they had been stolen or that who are who our sources were or the fact that we didn't know our sources.
0: This was like a preview of a debate they would have within the Post newsroom not too long afterwards, three months several later. months afterwards about months the Pentagon Papers. This was three months before the Pentagon
3: Papers. I think of it as maybe a dress rehearsal for Catherine's <laughs> decisions that she had to then uh, make later. But what at four o'clock, I think Mitchell realized that he wasn't succeeding at the Post. And he put out a a bulletin through the wire services demanding that anyone who had files or copies of these files not publish them, not make them known, and return them to the FBI immediately. So there was added pressure at, at that point. And when I left, I was not engaged in these arguments. I was off at my desk just writing, calling people in Philadelphia who were in the files, gathering information. And then I submitted my story at six o'clock and uh, when I was ready to leave. And I learned then for the first time that there was some doubt as to whether or not they would be published. Uh, And I was very surprised at that. So how things played out was that the arguments continued and by 10 o'clock, which was at at that time, I think that was the last uh, time by which you could make a decision to publish or not publish. And by 10 o'clock, Catherine did make the decision to publish and it was on the front page the next day.
2: You made the late city edition. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right.
3: Right. Uh, and, you know, a couple
0: of little, uh, you know, interesting details. Uh, you weren't the first person to get these documents. They were sent to To members, a couple of members of Congress who are known to be very critical of the FBI, starting with Senator George McGovern and then uh, Congressman Mitchell, an African American uh, congressman from Baltimore. And both of them returned the documents to the FBI because they did not want to take possession of stolen material and criticized the burglars. And criticized the burglars. That was not anything you considered doing
3: no um, and we i actually i didn't really know what had transpired with the journal. i guess we knew what that the that the members of congress had given them back and then publicly criticized the the burglars for what they had done i didn't realize until many years later when i was working on my book and reading the 38,000 and some pages of the of the fbi's investigation of, of burglary I didn't realize then what had happened at the New York Times and L.A. Times, where two uh, journalists had received the files.
0: Jack Nelson of the L.A. Times and Tom Wicker of the New York Times.
3: Right. Very different things happened at each paper. And each of those stories of of what happened is important to helping understand the atmosphere at the time regarding uh, how the FBI was, was treated. At the L.A. Times, the burglars had addressed the envelope to Jack Nelson. And Jack Nelson was a great investigative reporter. And he was probably one of about two <laughs> journalists in the country who had done any serious investigation of, of Hoover. And about two years earlier, he had done, uh, along with another journalist named Jack Bass, um, a story of, about the FBI and their involvement in the Orangeburg Massacre in the South. And that hadn't happened before. Hoover was just enraged that someone would have any questions about his agents and think that they had done something inappropriate. And as I said, it was two years earlier. So for that full two-year period, by the time the FBI documents arrived, Hoover had been involved in this campaign to get Jack fired. It involved Hoover personally going to LA to visit the publisher to try to convince him he should be fired. It involved uh, getting in touch with the bureau chief in Washington where Jack was located, convincing him. And they stood by Jack and they did not fire him. However, they convinced somebody in the Washington bureau, a sub editor, to watch Jack's mail. And I know this from, again, from reading the FBI's investigation and their description of what happened. And that man, Opened the envelope that was addressed to Jack, the same stuff I got, saw what it was, and immediately called the FBI and then went to the FBI and turned them in. When I told Jack about this in the early 1990s, as I learned about it in the files, I mean, Jack was as angry as if it had just happened that morning. So the
0: FBI had a spy
3: inside the
0: L.A. Times Washington Watching Jack Mills. In one of the documents that you got, there was this cryptic reference in a routing slip to something uh, called COINTELPRO. You didn't know what it was, but it raised a lot of eyebrows among a lot of people.
3: Not yet. <laughs> I mean, the eyebrows that were raised when it first came out were inside the FBI. That one file of a mere cover sheet that had COINTELPRO in big block letters in the top right-hand corner, despite the fact that its content was not news, (laughs) that file was the single most important file that they removed from media. And what was happening inside the FBI, and again, I know this from reading the investigation, was that Hoover and other high officials had been waiting desperately they, he had assumed that they'd be arrested immediately and the documents secured. And when that didn't happen, the tensions kept getting higher and higher because they were very concerned about what might be released at any time by the burglars. But they were most concerned about whether COINTELPRO would be revealed. And when I got that cover sheet, I mentioned what it was attached to, and that was somewhat newsworthy. But... I didn't use the term COINTELPRO, but as I read in the investigation, they knew from reading my story that day that I had the COINTELPRO cover sheet, and that caused a great many things to happen.
0: Because COINTELPRO was the most secret and controversial program that J. Edgar Hoover ever launched, and it was designed not just to surveil activists— uh, but to disrupt them, intimidate destroy. them, and, and destroy their reputations. Yeah.
3: Cohen-Telpro was the most important revelations. And these were programs that ranged from crude uh, to cruel to violent and even murderous, as we learned from Judas and the Black Messiah. But uh, many instances, they were intended to disrupt and destroy individuals and organizations. An overwhelming majority of the damage was done to Black people and Black organizations in those programs and in everything else that Hoover did.
2: I have one final question for Keith, which is, uh, what you did and, and what Betty did by exposing these documents was in part, you know, what led Years later, to the uh, to congressional hearings, to the Church Committee hearings, um, and to reforms um, at the FBI and the intelligence community more more generally, after all these years, do you think that today the kind of break in that you and your fellow uh, burglars did uh, are still necessary and justified, even if they are uh, digital break-ins as opposed to physical break-ins?
1: I mean, I think it's you know, the same thinking as we had back then, it's a case by case basis, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to make a judgment. Uh, You know, Edward Snowden made a judgment about those documents. And, uh, you know, when when James Clapper was asked a direct question, whether they were surveilling American citizens, uh, you know, without a warrant, he lied straight up. So in those kinds of circumstances, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but, you know, there has to be accountability. Uh, You know, I don't approve of the idea of taking a giant trove of documents and dumping it uh, unedited and uncurated onto the Internet because you don't know who's going to get hurt. But there clearly are still circumstances where people with power do things they shouldn't be doing and they hide it. Uh, So if if we can't get to them with sunshine laws or things of that nature, then you have to get to them some other way.
2: Well, Isakoff and I are still working journalists, uh, so you can, if you get involved in this again, you can send them to us.
1: (laughs) I'm afraid the digital break-in is not my thing, but um, I'm more of a physical world guy.
0: Um, Betty, final question for you. The FBI is faced with a, a domestic terrorism threat today from right-wing extremists, white supremacists, uh, the kind of insurrectionists we saw at the uh, Capitol on, um, on January 6th, and is facing a lot of pressure to step up its surveillance of these groups to detect what they are up to um, if they were to engage in some of the kinds of activities uh, that they were doing back then against left wing groups. Um, would you object if they did that today? And I'd,
3: I'd like to get Keith's thoughts on that as well, both of you. Despite all of the reforms that followed the burglary as a result of the burglary, every time in history since then that something has become a target because of people's opposition, the FBI has overreached and not with much success. Uh, CIA and FBI, Guantanamo, rendition, those are key examples after 9-11. I think one of the important lessons that maybe is a a good answer to your question is something that we've learned from Mike German, the former covert FBI agent, um, who has now been reflecting and writing a lot on, on these issues. And that he always found that although there was pressure to go against the rules and violate people's basic rights. He found as a covert agent, he got much more information and much more helpful information that led to convictions and to, the, and to stopping of crime than the people who were overreaching did. And I'm, by the way, I think this is one of the most important things to understand is that all of this that the FBI was doing It was all illegal. And none of it, there's a historian, a wonderful historian, Ethan Theo Harris, who has studied the FBI his entire career as a scholar. And one of the conclusions that he reached was that not a single crime was ever stopped as a result of all of the massive surveillance and crimes against people that took place. No one was arrested. Law enforcement itself was damaged. The FBI was not engaging in law enforcement as it did this damage.
0: Keith, if the FBI were to use informants and conduct surveillance against white supremacists and militia groups today to counter the domestic terrorism threat, would you have a problem with that? My thing
1: is that we we have a we have protections in our constitution for citizens. And we have procedures that law enforcement has to follow, uh, you know, probable cause, et cetera, et cetera. Working within those restrictions, we are able to investigate and sometimes stop, sometimes not stop, but prosecute crimes after they happen. And that's the way it should be handled, no matter who it is. If there are honest law enforcement people in place in every agency, I know a couple of them who feel that doing it by the book is not only the morally right thing to do, but as Betty just said, the most effective thing to do. Uh, My understanding is there was pressure from above to get FBI agents who were investigating the possibility of right-wing terrorism to shift their focus over to uh, left-wing people People. instead of right-wing people.
0: Well, look, uh, those restrictions that you referred to uh, are in place uh, to a great degree because of what you did back in 1971 in breaking into that FBI office and, Betty, what you did in publicizing what the FBI was doing. It's uh, an important, ongoing debate, but you both played a role. So I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. You're
1: welcome. Thank you. Thank you.